Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to Elder's Targeted Individual Community Call. It's Thursday, April 12, 2018. I'm redoing the recording because um, the, the, it was my it, these were my errors, so I didn't want I'll delete that recording, and then we'll use this one. Hopefully, there won't be any um, glitches, so to speak. Um, so I'm going to cover today uh, Facebook. Uh, Democracy Now! covered. Facebook doesn't sell your data. It sells you. Um, she's going to speak with someone. Uh, they'll introduce it as April 11, 2018 on democracynow.org. But this whole concept of behavioral modification um, is not new, actually. The government and other uh, state, corporate, and academia, basically, you hear me say that all this time, state, corporate, and academia sponsored, sanctioned, and covered up, okay? These are the type of things where you try to alter people's behavior by altering the narrative. A narrative is the ontology of the story or um, and how if you manipulate it or how you sell a negative false light narrative, you manipulate the, the target audience in order for them to buy your product or you know you use this power of suggestion, power of association, or power of association, power of suggestion. And it's a subtle form of what they call behavioral modification. But behavioral modification has been rebranded so it sounds less aggressive than psychological manipulation or brainwashing or mind control. Now, there's a lot of, you'll hear targets talking about, they, you know, the mind control um, and, 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 how, and they're using weaponized neuroscience and neurotechnologies to also conduct or to manipulate your synaptics, uh, your synapses or to it basically manipulates the cognitive motor and their central nervous system function. So a lot of times they may be using that because those are people who are less likely to be manipulated based solely on propaganda or narratives. So what you see is the vast majority of the population are people who are susceptible to narrative-driven behavioral modification. How things are worded, the corruption of linguistics, in order to manipulate people to get them to do what you want them to do, okay? They were not terrorized. They were not, you know, it's called a trauma-based mind control, where you keep traumatizing someone so that you can alter their behavior, split their personality. You see that a lot with, um, co- it's a cognitive um, uh, disassociation with a lot of children who've been brutally abused or sexually abused. They tend to have, they, they split the personality, right? The one that is safe and the one that is abused. Those are all trauma-based forms of uh, behavioral modification. But with the general public, with your perpetrator community in particular, those people weren't traumatized or tortured or anything. The only thing that was done to them was basically they were sold a narrative, a negative false light narrative, a piece of propaganda. And they kept nudging them in order to get them to alter their behavior so that they would turn against the scapegoated target, 
within their communities. So when you hear the word behavioral modification, it's just the rebranding of the word mind control and brainwashing and psychological manipulation. So I've had plenty of time to study and profile the very people who are conducting the operations, and I've exposed it, in particular on TalkShoe. But what I've noticed is that um, several of my episodes from 2012 to 2014, basically, have the recordings have been removed. But at least the, the date of the um, recording, the title of the recording, and the, the source material of the recording are still there. So it shows that I'm not making things up after the fact. I've already exposed it, and I sit back and wait for it to come out so that everything that I've accused my government, these corporations, and academia of doing comes out. So what is manipulation? Well, you just get some handler to come in and drop ship, and they have studied community after community because wherever a target has moved or been driven out of and into, they will drop ship these narrative network teams, these psi operators. And what those people do are they start selling a narrative they look for people, and I covered this on the show before, and that has to do with profiling not just the target, but profiling community members to find out who leaders are within, who are group leaders, who are the people that you need to manipulate so that they can manipulate the people around them to go with the program. See, I've also said this before, that targets are done deals from head to toe. They've been working us. But the real experiment is called mass subjugation, which is how do you manipulate the masses to get them to do or think the way you want them to whenever you want them to. They become sleeper cells for the state. You just activate that group, that uh, religious organization. Because they become indoctrinated. They become brainwashed. So for me, you know, they always say mind control, but see, I believe that there's two, two types of behavioral modifications. One is brainwashing through propaganda. You use these subtle nudges, and we'll get into the term nudge, because they are going after Facebook, which is, which is rightly so, because I've covered shows that um, as far back as like 2012 or 13, 13, I think, on Facebook, and this has to do with this whole concept of using your algorithms to profile people and then to manipulate them into altering their emotions or their behavior. That's brainwashing. That's behavioral, but you're modifying the behavior of someone. When I look at mind control, I look at the techniques that are utilized that are much more coercive through trauma, right, through torture, through other weaponized mechanical means, such as the weaponization of neuroscience and neurotechnologies. I played this one um, one uh, video because it's very short, but it's self-explanatory, and it's a guy from BBC, and he has parts of his brain zapped 
with the transcranial magnetic stimulation. So it's a radio frequency that comes in and it hits specific regions of the brain and how it disrupts his, his cognitive motor uh, skills. And these are the type of things that they know through the weaponization, right? You can't see a magnetic pulse, but the victim can feel it because it's a non-surreptitious form of technology. But these are all forms of, of coercive methodologies in order to alter, to deliberately alter and or trigger. That's mind control. Brainwashing is simply using various, you know, external, less lethal type of tactics, psychological operations, and the, actually, basically, all of the information operations. They consider that non-lethal or less lethal, non-kinetic forms of warfare. You know, so there's kinetic force and there's non-kinetic force. Okay, kinetic force is a bat, a baton, a bullet, a missile, and the kinetic force of what hits or impacts the individual. Non-kinetic conflict or warfare has to do with less lethal methodology. So that could include psychological operations, military deception, right? Computer networks, computer network exploitation, computer network attacks, cyber. Those are all considered less lethal or non-kinetic forms of warfare. But then, at, you know, using uh, harnessing the electromagnetic spectrum, you can also create a weapon, like a taser. So less likely to cause lethality. But psychological operations or military information specialist operations or MISO, which they rebranded psychological operations or PSYOPs to MISO, M-I-S-O. Because the word psycho psychology and psych psychological manipulation is a word that people will instantly recognize as being a negative connotation because they're using their expertise in the field of psychology, sociology, anthropology to figure out ways on how to manipulate people to do what you want them to do. And targeting has been the breeding ground of experimentation in city after city, state after state nation after nation, that they deployed and executed against their own citizens to see if they could manipulate their community, their law enforcement, their fire, their EMT, to see if they could manipulate these jackasses into active participation because they, as in handlers, narrative network teams, psi operators, behavioral scientists, could utilize any narrative based on their profile of communities, of community members, of leaders within those communities or enforcement agencies. Who is the best person that has the biggest member base to manipulate in order to get them to buy into the behavioral modification program? So like I said, I've always said that targets are done deals. What does that mean? That means from head to toe, we've already been assessed, profiled, you name it, tagged, implanted, everything. But the biggest experiment is the social and cultural experiment of how you manipulate entire communities of people 
and radicalize those people to believe whatever they say about their set-up scapegoat. And can you get various people to watch the rise to their radicalization so that they're willing to commit indiscriminate acts of violence against that individual? It's a simple premise. And yet the people who are hardcore, so they have these people, you know, the mission offenders, right? They're the people who just jump on board because they want to see. The thrill seekers, they do it because they get a thrill out of harming the target. But then you have these hardcore recruits. Okay, and these things can be analyzed through the seven-stage hate model, which the sociologists put together for the Federal Bureau of Investigation on what to look for in the seven stages of hate. And when you start reading through there, you see that they use the same propaganda in order to get the end result of hate groups, of terrorist organizations. But what does it take for a person to become a terrorist, to become radicalized? And that's what they're studying. Because in the end, what they're doing is they're building standoff modalities or malleant detectors for your next, next, next generation biometrics. It's not the brain of the target that needs to, people need to worry about. It's the people who hide in plain sight within your own community that are willing to commit these indiscriminate acts of violence. It's about how people are being manipulated, how their behavior is being manipulated. So that it's so seamless that the people who are rising to radicalization don't even realize that it's been done to them. A terrorist organization, a gang, okay, that, that's quantitatively more than one person. The solo target is not the one that the society should be worried about. Society in general needs to be worried about those people who are most susceptible to cult mentality to being able to be manipulated to the point where not only are they willing to commit indiscriminate acts of violence against another human being, but they are also willing to kill them. Isn't that the end result of radicalization? To kill that person, to kill that perceived enemy. And what has happened? Well, that was done through the nudging of people. The slow process of poisoning the mind. And they're saying, well, the target, look at how angry they are. Yeah, I'm angry because I know what, my, what state, corporate, and academia have been doing on the streets of America for years. I am angry at the fact that there's that many people within my own country, within society, who are that willing to buy into the bullshit that these people have sold to them. I'm angry at the fact that there's that many people out there without critical thinking skills where they have an internet that can provide them with sourced material. Instead, what do they do? They run to the group, and if the group leader tells them it's okay, and these are the Facebook and other behavioral experiments, and they've proven, they have proven that you can alter people's behavior or moods based on the leader of the group who clicked a link, so therefore the other people click the link and then alter their mood. And the worst part about it, 
is once you've radicalized them to that point, they don't they, they don't look at the other individual in a human or their humanity, but as a, in a dehumanized manner. So it makes it that much easier to inflict harm, violence against the individual who's been set up. The target didn't do anything to them. They're handlers and psi operators and narrative networks have. Everybody's like a guinea pig. They keep blaming the solo target, but the target's not the one who's bad. The target's the one who has been trying to expose it for years. So like I said, from your community to the workplace, you get a handler that comes in there, and they subtly start nudging these people to the point where they don't even give a shit that they're harming you. But that's on them. That's why I won't accept any any uh, apology. I won't accept any form of excuse. Because in the end, everybody made a choice but the target. I didn't have a choice in the matter. I was thrown into something that I've been trying to expose for years. But instead of crawling into a ball, which they want you to do, I keep standing up. Because like I've said before, it's better to stand alone knowing you stood for what was right than to stand with a group of people who are doing what is fundamentally wrong. I don't give a shit what kind of uh, of, uh, of whitewashing sanitization they have tried to utilize in order to justify what they've done. I consider these people terrorists. I consider these people people who have committed treason and sedition against the Constitution of the United States of America by violating my constitutionally protected rights and liberties. And what does this country do to terrorists in their own words and terrorist organizations? Whether it's from Boston to the Fatah, you hunt them and you eliminate them. So they're always going around talking about what a target is, but not a single one of these people have picked up a mirror and taken a look at who they are and what they've done and how they've used these people in positions of power, expertise, authority, and how those people have been so corrupted that they wouldn't even be able to recognize the truth. Don't come to me and target me. You should be looking at the people who are manipulating you. So I'm going to place a couple. I'm going to start from the the current information, and I'm going to go back 
So I have these um, talk show shows that I've recorded since 2012, and basically from 2012 to 2014, my recordings have been, uh, you can no longer find them. It says the file's not found. Um, but what you can do is you can at least, uh, they what they left was the uh, title of the show, the date of the recording, and all this, I source all my material. So what I do is I link all the articles that I've covered in order to give people the opportunity because I don't just talk. I source my material more than one, you know, outlet to see if the source material, there's accuracy to it. I look for government documents that that are published because it's in the public records or medical or, or academia. So I don't just talk off, you know, somebody's blog or whatever. I source the material that I talk about. So it's really disheartening to know that my recordings of documenting what has been happening at state, corporate, and academia levels to manipulate the American people. And it's not just in America. We have targets all over the globe, most, mostly NATO allied con- countries, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which means that it was a comprehensive global initiative. to utilize their experts from their various fields in state, corporate, and academia, in particular psychology, sociology, uh, anthropology, about the study of people. Artificial intelligence is what? It's about trying to make a computer more human, to think more like humans. So in this case, it has to do with the psychological manipulation. And what I'm going to cover now, I, I covered yesterday or the day before, is this whole concept of behavioral modification. So let me give you a little definition of that. Behavioral modification. Behavioral modification refers to behavior change procedures that were employed during the 1970s and 80s based on methodological behaviorism. Overt behavior was modified through the use of presumed consequences in including positive and negative reinforcement contingencies to increase desirable behavior or administrating positive and negative punishment and or extinction to reduce behavior. For the treatment of phobias, habitation, punishment, were the basic principles used in flooding. So basically what it's trying to say, if you don't get it, and in a lay term is they use certain forms of manipulation, usually through the corruption of linguistics, being manipulate words in order to manipulate people. And you try you try to learn how to perfect the technique so that it's being done so subtly that the person who's being manipulated, say, to be a part of the perpetrator community has no idea that that's what they're being manipulated into doing to the point where they're willing to commit indiscriminate acts of violence against an unarmed defenseless human being. And people think violence is just hitting someone. No, violence, there are psychological means of violence. Playing games on people, thinking it's a joke, messing around with people. Those are all acts of violence. So I'm going to start with this recording from Facebook. Um, And like I said, there's a way on the RSS feeds to go back. You can type a search and on my show with the search, and then you can type in Facebook or behavior or whatever, and I'll start clicking on it. will start showing you some of the links to the articles that were covered. 
the journals that were medical journals or government documents that were covered. It's a shame that they took my recordings. It's like stealing my intellectual property because we're trying to cover up the crimes that they've committed. Because they know that I was documenting all of it. And continue to document all of it. But in cases with Facebook being hauled in front of Congress, it's simply a validation of what I've already documented. So I'm going to start from 2018. I'll play a recording from 2015 because thank goodness that's not gone. And that has to do with an executive order. September of 2015, an executive order to gently nudge people, utilizing behavioral sciences on how to best corrupt linguistics in order to manipulate people. I'll get back into the narrative network team, which I wanted to cover on the last show. Uh, this was in 2011, mind you, the solicitation by the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, the best and the brightest minds of technology, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, you know, the STEM, and how they utilize their brilliance ultimately to weaponize everything. What is the truth? Well, as a target who has been the victim of what's been happening and publishing what's been done and waiting for the truth, as in leaks or other forms, to come out. I'm far more ahead of people in terms of what the truth is than anyone around my whole society. And the only other people who are like that are targets who have taken the time to study and profile what was being done to them and how it was being done. I'm not talking about those those crazed ones that all the reporters go after who believe in reptilians and it's a satanic cult doing this. I don't live in a community of satanic worshipers. I live in a community that is predominantly Christian. I go to church on Sunday. Now, just think if all your pastors and every single one of your churches were manipulated by behavioral modifiers, by narrative network teams. And so then, once that pastor or that teacher or that organization leader or that chief of police or someone within you know, law enforcement or <coughs> organizations, corporations, law firms, you name it, once they've been manipulated and they have a member base, then they begin to nudge those people without even knowing that they're nudging them to think and behave a certain way. It's a domino effect. The solo target does not pose a threat. They're the whistleblowers exposing the truth. So this was from Democracy Now! April 11, 2018. Facebook doesn't sell your data, it sells you. Those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg faced off with senators Tuesday in a marathon five-hour hearing on the privacy scandals plaguing the social network. Zuckerberg was called to answer questions about how the voter profiling company Cambridge Analytica harvested the data of more than 87 million Facebook users without their permission in efforts to sway voters to support President Donald Trump. In the first of two days of hearing, Zuckerberg repeatedly apologized. 
We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. I started Facebook, I run it, and I'm responsible for what happens here. The Facebook data was first obtained by a Cambridge University academic named Alexander Kogan, whose company Global Science Research built an app that paid Facebook users to take a personality test and agree to have their data collected. The app also collected data on these users' friends meaning it actually collected personal information from tens of millions of users without their knowledge. Cambridge Analytica then bought this data in order to turn a voter profiling company into a powerful psychological tool, which began launching targeted political ads aimed at carrying out Robert Mercer's far-right political agenda. Democratic Senator Kamala Harris of California questioned Zuckerberg about why it took Facebook 27 months, more than two years, to alert users to the Cambridge Analytica breach. Are you aware of anyone in leadership at Facebook who was in a conversation where a decision was made not to inform your users, or do you believe no such conversation ever took place? I, I'm not sure whether there was a conversation about that, but I can tell you the thought process at the time of the company, which was that in 2015, when we heard about this, we banned the developer, and we demanded that they delete all the data and stop using it, and the same with Cambridge Analytica. And I, they told I us they had. I'm in that regard, but I'm talking about notification of the users, and, and, and this relates to the issue of transparency and the relationship of trust, informing the user about what you know in terms of how their personal information has been misused. And I'm also concerned that when you personally became aware of this, did you or senior leadership do an inquiry to find out who at Facebook had this information and did they not have a discussion about whether or not the users should be informed back in December of 2015. Senator, in retrospect, I think we clearly view it as a mistake that we didn't inform people and we did that based on false information that we thought that the case was closed and that the data had been deleted. So there was a decision made on that basis, not to inform the users. Is that correct? That's my understanding, yes. Okay. And, um, but I, I, in retrospect, I think that was a mistake, and knowing what we know now, we should have handled a lot of things here differently. That is Mark Zuckerberg answering the questions of California Senator Kamala Harris. We begin today's show with Zainab Tufekci. She's an associate professor of information library science at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, also faculty associate at the Harvard Berkman Center for Internet and Society, author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. Her recent piece for the New York Times is headlined, We Already Know How to Protect Ourselves from Facebook. More than two million people have viewed her recent TED Talk titled, We're Building a Dystopia Just to Make People Click on Ads. Professor Zainab Tufekci, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you talk about what happened yesterday, what Mark Zuckerberg said, what he didn't say, and what was and wasn't asked by the senators in the first of two days of hearings? So what was really interesting yesterday is that the senators started asking questions that sounded fine, and probably because the staffers sort of prepared the questions well. And then they got lost in asking the questions. They weren't able to understand how Facebook actually worked. They kept asking sort of technically weird questions that didn't make sense. And even
even more striking, there were times that uh, Facebook's own CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, couldn't answer fairly basic questions on how the platform worked. For example, he was asked, can Facebook track users across devices? Does Facebook track people's uh, browsing or their activities when they're logged out? The answers to both are yes, and Zuckerberg struggled and said, I'll have my team get back to you. To me, this is kind of like this interesting moment where we are finally struggling to understand and grapple with the new information commons, even after all these scandals, all these brouhaha. And I wrote a piece recently for Wired 2 where I listed the 14 years of apologies. So this isn't even the first time Facebook CEO is apologizing. He's been apologizing nonstop before even Facebook was founded. He was apologizing for the previous version of uh, the initial prototype for Facebook face mash. So, I mean, 15 years later in, we're finally starting to deal with the kind of power a platform with 2 billion users uh, pretty much significant amount of information flows, socialization, civic functions, politics happens. Uh, I did find it quite interesting that there's finally some questions on its power, whether it had competition, how, um, you know, because Facebook is essentially without competition at this point. That's what makes it partly so powerful. There were a lot of questions that weren't really asked. I mean, Facebook tracks people who, op who don't even use the uh, platform. They have shadow profiles. It's data, uh, Mark Zuckerberg constantly try to say, we'll keep the data within our walls. But the problem is how much data they collect in the first place. I mean, of course, it's better if they don't just recklessly give away the data as they did probably more than once, not just Cambridge Analytica. Uh, but even if they shut that down as they did in 2015, and even if they did a good job collecting this much data on 2 billion people and then selling their eyeballs, to whomever's paying Facebook, selling their attention, that's the product of Facebook, is a huge problem. The fact that if you want to do politics, if you want to socialize, if, you have if you're an immigrant and have family around the world, the fact that that's the platform you kind of have to be on is a huge problem. It was touched upon, but not really delved into. And maybe what I didn't really see is, and which is what I wrote in the New York Times op-ed that you mentioned, is that what are we going to do about it? I mean, we actually know enough. We don't really need Mark Zuckerberg to explain the very basics of Facebook to a bunch of senators who don't seem to even understand that. We need to sit down and say, how do we deal with the new information commons? How do we deal with the new public sphere as it operates? I want to turn to Democratic Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois questioning uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Um, uh, no. If you've messaged anybody this week, would you share with us the names of the people you've messaged? Senator, no, I would probably not choose to do that publicly here. I think that might be what this is all about. Your right to privacy, the limits of your right to privacy, and how much you give away in modern America in the name of, quote, connecting people around the world. Question, basically, of uh, what information Facebook's collecting, who they're sending it to, and whether they ever ask me in advance my permission to do that. Is that a fair thing for a user of Facebook to expect? Yes, Senator. I think everyone should have control over how their information is used. And as we've talked about in, in some of the other questions, I think that that is laid out 
in, in some of the documents, but more importantly, you want to give people control in the product itself. So that was Mark Zuckerberg's response. Um, Zainab Tufekci, uh, just explain exactly um, what's going on here. And also this bigger point that uh, uh, Kamala Harris raised, which should, for more than two years you decided not to tell anyone. Um, about the right. fact that they are that 80 million users um, had their information given over. Right. So the first thing, what happened is, uh, the, if your friend had downloaded an app, um, then your information got transferred to the app maker. And while Cambridge Analytica is in the news because of its political implications. There were maybe tens of thousands, maybe even more apps that had that kind of access until 2015 or so. So I would personally be surprised if the number of people's information was taken that way and then transferred to other parties and is existing somewhere on the you know dark web is not pretty much everybody who's been on the site. And that was about a billion people at the time. So that, that's the important thing is I think that kind of data harvesting probably is much larger than uh, just the Cambridge Analytica app, which is just one app among uh, many. So the second thing about the privacy controls is uh, Facebook does two things here. One, they keep trying to say, we give you control, we give you control, we'll keep the data ourselves. And even if you take that at face value, but as the Cambridge Analytica app scandal sort of shows you, they weren't. But even if they do this from going forward, what happens is it's quite hard for people to understand exactly what kind of data is collected. And a lot of their controls have been obscure. Like there's no one little click saying, do not collect data about me. It's like you have to kind of figure out, you have to go into a million different menus. And I, I, I'm, you know, I have a technical background. I've been studying this stuff for a long time. And I sometimes get lost in the weeds of their menus and can't figure out how to do this. How is an ordinary person supposed to figure this out? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, by promising to keep data completely secure from now on, they're still not dealing with the fact that they are collecting an enormous amount of data. And that is not just what you voluntarily share. So a lot of people say, you know what, I don't care. I told Facebook where my college is, what my political views are. And I told Facebook the pages I like, and that's okay. But that's not all it collects. It purchases data from data brokers. You know, there's um, your shopping habits. It promised to merge offline data. Like if you go into a store and buy something, it wants to match you to your Facebook ID. Uh, it collects data while you're browsing across the web by tracking pixels. It tracks you across devices. On Android phones, uh, there was this, Miss, sort of, there was this obscure control. If you kind of missed it, it flashed before you. Before you knew it, you had just given it permission to read and um, sort of have information on all the text messages, the SMS messages you sent outside of the app. You know, you're just texting normal people. And when people were downloading their Facebook database uh, this week as a result of the scandal and thinking what's in there, a lot of people found that every single text message they had sent on their Android phone, you know, they're just messaging their parents or, you know, their girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, it's all in Facebook's databases. So this kind of surveillance machine, which is then used where the data is used, to target you to whomever's paying Facebook is dangerous on its own. Now, a lot of people mistakenly think that Facebook sells your data. Facebook doesn't sell your data. Facebook sells you, right? Facebook's selling your attention, and it's selling 
people's attention screen by screen. So you don't really get to see at a global level what's going on. For example, you know, a lot of media critics uh, would remember when uh, leading up to the Iraq war, New York Times got a lot of things wrong and it was horrible in its consequences. It was a grave um, problem. But you could at least see it and say, look, this is wrong. And you could try to get in the public sphere and try to correct it. I mean, it's not an ideal situation, obviously, but at least you know what's in front of you and you can organize and you can try to do something. Whereas when misinformation is targeted on Facebook or hate speech or things that are uh, that either go viral organically or where advertisers um, can target you, you don't even see it. So it's a the combination of this kind of power is a huge problem that we need to deal with. You know, you gave this very interesting TED talk where you talk about artificial intelligence, this kind of ad targeting, and people know about ad targeting maybe, but how yeah. deep it is. And you talked, for example, about identifying people who are bipolar and explain yeah. this. It is just astounding. Okay. So it is astounding, and this is the part, once again, it doesn't get understood well, because people think like the past. Like, I subscribe to Outside Magazine. It's like this uh, travel adventure. So if somebody wants to advertise on that to me, I'm on the subscriber list. That's the old method, right? It's a pretty clear, direct link. What happens now with artificial intelligence is that computers, com computational interfer uh, inference, can take seemingly unrelated data, Things like your Facebook likes, right? Not on the topic, but just your Facebook likes. Your posting frequency, the sort of the semantic tone of your words. And it can predict things like whether you're likely to enter into clinical depression or whether you're likely, say, to enter a manic phase if you have bipolar uh, mental health issues before the onset of clinical symptoms. So the computer can, you know, if with enough data about you, and it's not a lot of data, it's definitely the kind of data Facebook has on you, you can predict people's likelihood of entering a depressive state or a manic state in the next few months before we even have a clinical test for it because there are no clinical symptoms. Now, you can imagine the kind of manipulation that it's open to. You know, you want to target people uh, that you want to sell them discounted Las Vegas tickets to, you want to invite them to a casino, well, you know what? People about to enter a manic phase would be prime vulnerable targets because people become compulsive spenders and gamblers that they have a tendency to. If you want, if you've got people's personality profiles, which we know from research you can do with Facebook, uh, people with, you know, certain kinds of personality traits are more open to voting for authoritarians when they're afraid, according to research. You can try to target those people. And sometimes you can do all of this because of the way current computational models work. You can do all of this without even knowing you're doing this. You're going to go tell the computer, go find me people who are going to, you know, more likely to buy tickets to Vegas or more likely to vote for this guy uh, when they're afraid. You can just sort of tell the computer what to optimize for, and it can do all of this, and you don't even know. Like, you could even not have the intention to do this, but the way machine learning works this today, you could do this. So this is what I said. We could enter into a phase of what I term surveillance authoritarianism, where we don't face the kind of 1984 model where there's open totalitarianism, where we're kind of dragged off in the middle of the night kind of situation, but we're 
silently and quietly and person by person, screen by screen, nudged and manipulated according to our individual vulnerabilities. Yeah. That's, that kind of authoritarianism would even be hard to realize. You'd just be sort of like being nudged here and there, and there are these slow changes over time. And that's what's scary. That's what we got to get ahead of and not end up there. So that was uh, Democracy Now! Um, April 11, 2018. You can find that. Uh, Facebook doesn't sell your data, it sells you on democracynow.org. So if you want to re-listen to it or view the actual video of the uh, professor being interviewed. So now I'm going to go back in time. So that was 2018. Let's go to 2015, September of 2015. And this was an executive order from the White House. Uh, this was under Obama administration. But you have to understand that it's not just Obama or, or Trump or anyone. Those guys don't personally have any real control. This was about... Uh, a wheel that's been set in motion for years. And so she talks about this whole concept of manipulation and that you don't even know what's happening to you. Using computational data to profile. But I already covered that in my other show that that was my analysis way back in you know early the 2000s. They're, they're putting all this information into some type of uh, profiling Bible, a, a software system that can pull information on anybody and then know how to manipulate that individual. So this was from the White House Office of the Press Secretary for Immediate Release, September 15, 2015, Executive Order Using Behavioral Science Insights to Better Serve the American People. Uh, using Behavioral Science Insights to Better Serve the American People. And so I have the link, I put the link in to the, uh, so you can go to the talk shoe grabber for my, and you put my uh, show number in there and it'll give it to you. What I'll do is, this is one of the few recordings that have not been um, just, you know, uh, removed or who knows what happened to them, but that's a, that's talk to you. And I did ask them to please provide those uh, old recordings so that I could at least download them to my own uh, files. Um, and this was a recording back in September after I saw it, but I'm noticing something on my RSS feed. It has something that says one.amazon aws.com. So I'm wondering what Amazon might have to do with my recordings. Or maybe that's where they're using the postnet. So this again, it, it was uh, done in 2015. Uh, on all my shows, I give the date and sometimes the time so that it's all documented. Recorded live. Good evening. Welcome to Elvis Targeted Individual Community Call. It's Thursday, September 17th, 2015. So I was just happened to be floating through the news, just looking at various uh, articles, and something caught my attention because it it's all in line with. Um, at this point, it appears to be more like a cover up. Um, I talk about uh, cognitive neuroscience, the neuro, neurobiology, the neuropsychology, that's all the brain project, but it's about behavioral modification to the use of various coercive met, met, methodologies, if that's what you want to call it, propaganda, negative false light narratives, altering behavior of the average citizen. Um, I've covered it on who knows how many numerous shows, um, the fedbiz.gov through the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, which is supposed to be the elite of the elite in terms of government 
technological, biotechnological, et cetera, you know, the advances that we make before even certain areas get to them, they're, they're already fully operational. Um, at some point, I'm going to go through the, I found the unclassified budget for the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, and I'll cover some of that at some point. Uh, because you have to understand that once anything becomes un uh, declassified and they show it for the public records, especially with Defense Advanced Research Project Agency or DARPA, that means that about 90% 90 to 95% of the technology is fully, fully operational. Um, so you have to deal, you know, with having known this as a target and actually being validated. A lot of the stuff that's coming out is simple validation for targets like me who took the time to document, who took the time to analyze, and basically profile the operations itself and those who um, are part of it. You hear me say a lot of time that the true, the true experimentees, okay, the people who are being experimented on are not necessarily the solo targeted individuals. A lot of these advances has to do with mass education, crowd control, less lethal. And so when you're looking at, at um, if you're going to do it to the masses, then you might use a target as a conduit to bring together the groups in order to get them to do what you want them to do. Like sleeper cells, you can activate them because they're devout. They're brainwashed. And brainwashing is a form of behavioral modification. Propaganda, altering your, your viewpoints, that's behavioral modification. So basically, from the recording, you can see that it's, I'm like a broken record because it's the truth. And I keep repeating it. And the people who are opposed to it will continue to try to come up against you. So let me, I'm going to scroll forward a little bit in it because it, it covers the um, the uh, executive order that I found online. Uh, and it has to do, well, it was an article, but then I started doing more research, and I found the actual press release from the White House uh, uh, under the Obama administration doing an executive order on utilizing these so-called nudges behave, to to alter the behavior through corruption of linguistics. Corruption in linguistics means that you're manipulating words in order to get people to do what you want them to do. And how susceptible are people to that? And this is all in line with the Facebook that's coming out. But I also have recordings of Facebook on how many experiments they did. And I think in my last show, I actually put a link in and I covered um, several. It was on someone's blog, but they, that person was smart enough to source their material to the articles. Uh, that came out through various, you know, local agencies or whatever in terms of how they were utilizing their data, their profiles on people. And then I went all the way back to my website that was published in 2011, and I talk about all this whole concept of basically profiling everyone so that you could use them, blackmail them, do whatever. So I talk about, I've also talked about this whole concept of spying. It's not about looking for terrorists. It's about getting data on people so that they could be coerced in certain ways. And then they use these behavioral scientists to, and psychologists and psychiatrists and anthropologists to manipulate it. It's all on my website.
long since exposing the tactical operations that were deployed and executed, not just against the targeted individual, the victim who's been scapegoated, but all of society. And it's so subtle the way they do it that you don't even realize that you're slowly being radicalized. Um, so let me go up some. I think I can. I think it's. Let me see. Four millions of students to more fully realize the benefits of behavioral insight. Okay, hold on. Whitehouse.gov forward slash the you know the dash press office, and I have all the links there. Executive order using behavioral science insights to better serve the American people. This is an executive order. <clears throat> using behavioral science insights to better serve the American people. A growing body of evidence demonstrates that behavioral science insights research findings from fields such as behavioral economics and psychology about how people make decisions and act on them can be used to design government policies to better serve the American people. Where federal policies have been designed to reflect behavioral science insights, they have substantially improved outcomes for the individuals, families, communities, and businesses those policies serve. For example, automatic enrollment and automatic uh, escalation in retirement savings plans have made it easier to save for the future and have helped Americans accumulate billions of dollars in additional retirement savings. Similarly, streamlining the application process for federal financial aid has made college more financially accessible for millions of students. To more fully realize the benefits of behavioral insights and deliver better results at a lower cost for the American people, the federal government should design its policies and programs to reflect our best understanding of how people engage with, participate in, use and respond to those policies and programs. By improving the effectiveness and efficiency of government, behavioral science insight can support a range of national priorities, including helping workers to find better jobs, enabling Americans to lead longer, healthier lives, improving access to education opportunities, and support for success in school, and accelerating the transition to a low-carbon economy. Now, how do you get that to happen? Well, you use narrative network teams. You use psychological operators. You use anthropology. You use sociology. And you use psychology. And you manipulate people so that they are better at recycling. And you manipulate people so that you can get them to do what you want them to do more effectively through manipulation. Whenever you see the term behavioral, that means that they're working on how to manipulate in the best way possible to get the outcomes they want. Not necessarily what you want, but what they want. And in the case of targets, where they're using cognitive neuroscience and neurotechnology and traumatology, That's a way of punishing people who don't behave the way they want them to. This goes beyond the torture scene from 1984 
when the interrogator is asking the victim, how many fingers am I holding up? And I think it were four fingers. So he kept saying four because that's what he's seeing. He's seeing this, this interrogator holding up four fingers. So they keep torturing him relentlessly until he finally breaks and says, as many, you know, whatever number of fingers, you know, you tell me they are. If you don't go with their program, then they come after you. So remember, this is my recording over here in 2015 and talked about 1984, but you heard earlier in the, um, the uh, um, uh, Democracy Now! that I played from, from 2018, they're talking about 1984. That's the movie. And she's saying how it's not as overt, which it isn't. It's very subtle in what they're doing. And people don't even realize till they're fully indoctrinated that they have been fully manipulated. But it's all about manipulation. Yeah. And because much of it is coming through the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, they are forbidden to use psychological operations on the American people. You cannot make an informed decision if those decisions are being manipulated to alter your behavior, therefore changing your attitudes and your behavior. Then you're not being informed. You're being manipulated. So it sounds one, you know, hunky-dory and wonderful coming from the White House because they always use the benign thing. They don't tell you about the offensive weaponized use of the same thing and the destruction that it causes to the human life and or humanity of another individual. What is truth? Well, you don't know anymore because what you're getting is propagandized manipulation. That's not what this country is about. That's why we have the Bill of Rights, to protect the individual from this type of manipulation, from mob mentality, from corruption, from, what is it, self-determination and autonomy. Now, therefore, by the authority vested in the pres- uh, uh, in me as president by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, I hereby direct the following. Section 1, Behavioral Science Insight Policy Directive. A, executive departments and agency or agencies are encouraged to, one, identify policies, programs, and operations where applying behavioral science insight may yield substantial improvement in public welfare, program outcomes, and program cost effectiveness. Two, develop strategies for applying behavioral science insights to programs and, where possible, rigorously test and evaluate the impact of these insights. Three, recruit behavioral science experts to join the federal government as necessary to achieve the goal of this directive. And four, strengthen agency relationships with the research community to better use empirical findings from the behavioral science. So what does that mean? 
that means you conduct experiment. You, you send these teams out into the streets of America and you start manipulating them. But if you're a perpetrator, they've already done it to you. If you're a part of the coalition of the willing, this nationwide network that is targeting an individual from within your community, you have already been manipulated in their human experiments. B, in implementing the policy directive in Section A, agencies shall identify opportunities to help qualifying individuals, families, communities, and businesses access public programs and benefits by an appropriate streamlining process that may otherwise limit or delay participation. For example, removing administration, administrative hurdles, shortening wait times, and simplifying forms. Improve how information is presented to consumers, borrowers, program beneficiaries, and other individuals, whether it's directed directly conveyed by the agency or in setting standards for the presentation of information by considering how the content format timing and medium by which information is conveyed affects comprehension and action by individuals as appropriate. Three, identify programs that offer choices and carefully consider how the presentations and structures of those choices, including the order, number, and arrangement of options and most effectively prompt public welfare as appropriate, giving particular consideration to the selection of setting of defaults and options. Review elements of their policy and programs that are designed to encourage or make it easier for Americans to take specific actions, such as savings for retirement or completing education programs. In doing so, agencies shall consider how the timing, frequency, presentation, and labeling of benefits, taxes, subsidies, and other incentives can more effectively and efficiently promote those actions as appropriate. Particular attention should be paid to opportunities to use non-financial incentives. For policies with the regulatory component, agencies are encouraged to combine their behavioral science insights policy directive with their ongoing review of existing significant regulations to identify or reduce regulatory burden and appropriate and consistent um, as appropriate and consistent with Executive Order 13563 of Je January 18, 2011. Improving regulations and regulatory review, the Executive Order 13610, May 10, 2012, identifying and reducing regulatory burden. Section 2, Implementation of the Behavioral Science Insight Policy Directive A. The Social and Behavioral Science Team, or FBSD, under the National Science and Technology Council, NSTC, and chaired by the Assistant to the President for Science and Technology, shall provide agencies with advice and policy guidance to help them execute the policy objectives outlined in Section 1 of this order as appropriate. B, the NT. NSTC shall release a yearly report summarizing agency implementation of Section 1 of this order each year until 2019. Member agencies of the SBST are expected to contribute to this report. C, to help exec execute the policy directive set forth in Section 1 of this order, the chair of the SBST shall, within 45 days of the date of this order and thereafter as necessary, issue guidance to assist agencies in implementing this order. Section 3, General Provisions A, nothing in this order shall be construed to impair or otherwise affect. One, the authority granted by law to the department or agency or the head 
thereof, or two, the function of the director of the office management and budget related to budgetary, administrative, and legislative procedure proposals. B, this order shall be implement, implemented consistent with applicable laws and subject to the availability of appropriations. C, independent agencies are strongly encouraged to comply with the requirements of this order. And E, the order is not intended to or does not create any right or benefit or procedural enforceable at law or in equity by any party against the United States departments, agencies, or entities, its officers, employees, or agents, or any other person. So basically, if they fuck with you and they ruin your life, you can't come back to the government because he signed an executive order trying to get these motherfuckers out of jail free. That's why I say you fight organized criminals with organized criminals. And if this executive order is trying to give these people a get out of jail free after what they've done to targeted individuals and to some of the public, because other other members of the public who knew about it and didn't want to participate, they feared them into silence. So anyway, that was the executive order from 2015. I did a recording. Um, and this is one of the few that has not disappeared, but it shows that it dates back before all this stuff is coming out. But actually, Facebook was caught, and I did some other recordings back in 2014, 2013, about their experiments that they were doing on the, their uh, users. So it's not, it's not new information. It's just that people don't realize. But at least I documented because I already outlined what, what what state corporate and academia have been doing and how they have abused their positions of power, authority, and or expertise to manipulate people to believe that what they were doing was, was you know, harmless, was benign. But it was building a social construct of sleeper cells that they can manipulate and target when they needed to based on the profiles that that these people give up willingly on their Facebook pages, Twitter feeds. It all goes into computational data. It's like a profiling Bible. But I've already documented all of that. So for those lay people out there who are still not getting it, um, I found something under government technology. It's a website, www.govtech.com. And it was uh, uh, published in 2000, March 31st, 2017, so a little over a year ago, by Chris Busquet, B-O-U-S-Q-U-E-T, Data-SmartCitySolutions. Uh, when government nudging is ethical, the practice has become a regular feature in many cities. Data-driven initiatives leveraging information gathered in randomized controlled trials to create evidence-based policies. Uh, the article, this article was originally published on Data Smart City Solutions. Nudging, okay, that's the term that they use, right? So they don't use it called, you know, psychological manipulation. We're going to, you know, use propaganda to manipulate you because if they did that, then people would be aware. But when you start rebranding and renaming things, you know, sort of like brutal torture is enhanced interrogation. And I believe recently they just rebranded it to something else that was even more benign. So when you hear the term behavioral modification, you, know, you hear these targets talking about mind control. They're mind controlling people. You know, they're they're brainwashing people. And so people look at those. Well, that's conspiracy. But when you use the term, you know, behavioral modification, well, it sounds so much more benign. That it's so much more harmless. But the effects are the same. It's a negative effect. So nudging 
using behaviorally informed measures to influence behavior has proven to be an effective tool in government for encouraging residents to pay parking tickets, save money, and bring blighted properties up to code. Nudging manipulates people's choice architecture, the physical, social, and psychological context that influence decision-making to promote preferred decisions. For example, one popular nudge involves changing the layout of grocery stores to make healthy foods more prominent, driving customers to buy and eat more healthily. The practice has become a regular feature in many cities' data-driven initiatives, leveraging information gathered in randomized controlled trials to create evidence-based policies. Its cost-effectiveness is undeniable. Most nudges are simple, cost little to implement, and can produce huge savings. However, some objects of nudging on entirely different grounds arguing that while effective, manipulating residents using behavioral science is unethical, (coughs) or at the very least should remain outside the realm of government activity. They see nudging as a big brother-esque violation of citizens' autonomy encroaching upon freedom of choice. So remember what I said in my 2015 recording that I played. What about autonomy? What about, you know, the right to choose? What about actual informed information as opposed to a manipulated form of propaganda? However, universally favoring or opposing nudging both miss the point. Rather, just as with any other reform, some nudges are ethical and others are not. It is the content of a nudge, its goal and level of transparency that determine whether or not it is ethical. While common objections to nudging appeal to citizen autonomy and concerns with government's proper role in residents' lives, nudging does not necessarily violate autonomy or overextended government overextends government any more than the law does for and so what they're saying is they're saying well what is autonomy well well, now they're trying to change the definition of what your autonomous self is right so we'll just word things that say well maybe it's not as unethical as you think oh i think that when you drop ship into a community and you manipulate civilian the target audiences to turn against someone who didn't do anything to them, who 90% of the people that target them are total strangers. Well, that's not a, that's not a positive thing. When you have people stalk and vandalize because they believe that what they do is right. Well, that's not a positive thing. That's a radicalization thing. That's terrorism. So it says autonomy. Probably the most common objection to nudging is that it can violate citizens' autonomy. This argument maintains that people should be able to make choices unfettered and free from external influence. Proponents of this argument may insist that, especially in a democracy where individual liberty is a core value, other actors should not be in the business of influencing citizen decisions. However, this common objection makes the false assumption that there exists such a thing as an unfettered decision. As Cass Sustin considered the the father of Nudge during his tenure as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs under President Barack Obama, explained in an article for the Yale Journal on Regulation, it is pointless to object to choice architecture or nudging as such. 
Choice architecture cannot be avoided. Nature itself nudges, so does the weather. So do customers and traditions, customs and traditions. So do spontaneous orders and invisible hands. In other words, nudges are inevitable, whether intentional or not. Businesses make every decision against the backdrop of a complex choice architecture. There's no such thing as a neutral platform from which to make a decision, and therefore, it makes little sense to object to nudges on the principle that they intrude upon citizens' free choice. Government's role. Yet, even granted that nudges are inevitable regardless of government activity, the question arises of whether or not it is government's place to nudge. Elspeth Kirkman of the Behavioral Insight Team, or BIT, the organization started in the British government, committed to using behavioral science to inform policy, explained that some politicians and residents expressed a nonspecific objection to government changing people's behavior. However, as Kirkman countered, this is what government does. Virtually, all laws are intended to change behavior and most in a much more directive way than nudging. Few would object to government's prohibition of things like theft or assault. Of course, citizens can and should object to specific nudges on the grounds that they are o- overly intrusive or not within the public interest, just as they should with certain laws. With certain laws, however, it makes little sense to object to nudging in principle simply because it influences behavior. So the article goes on. So it's the pros and cons about being manipulated. You know, but then your handlers will jump in after I do this and tell you, oh, but we're doing it for the greater good, for a just cause, right? To advance science and technology. You know who else said that? People like Dr. Joseph Mengele. You know, all those people who experiment to advance their protocols. They always say things like that. For the greater good. What, you mean manipulating people to the point that they don't even know what truth is? That's fucking bullshit. So now we're going to go, and now we're going back in time again, because this is uh, 2011, I believe it was. And so you've got the executive order saying that, you know, we're trying to get these people out of jail free because we've been manipulating. We've been using American soil as a big, fat laboratory. And I've covered that in my one-stop shop. But that's okay. It's ethical. You know, like the the psychiatrists and sociologists that... uh, 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 changed the guidelines of what torture was at the highest levels, working hand in glove with the Central Intelligence Agency and the Department of Defense in order to change the rules from within the American Psychological Association. And at the highest levels, all those people are now gone because it showed a conspiracy to commit and in violation of the RICO Act, which is organized criminal activity. That's why you heard in, in my 2015 recording, you fight organized criminals with organized criminals, even if those people have badges and sit in government agencies. So this was a solicitation number, DARPA, or DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, dash BAA, 
12-12-03. And this one was under fezbizops.gov. And I've also recorded this one when it came out, but like I said, the recordings. So this is October 7, 2011, DARPA BAA 12-03. October 7, 2011, DARPA is soliciting innovative research proposals in the area of one, quantitative, quantitative analysis of narratives, two, understanding the effects narratives have on human psychology and its affiliated neurobiology, and three, modeling, simulating, and sensing, especially in standoff modalities, these narrative influences. Proposers of this effort will be expected to revolutionize the study of narratives and narrative influence by advancing narrative analysis and neuroscience as to create new narrative influence sensors, doubling status quo capacity to forecast narrative influence. Okay, so narratives are stories. So then you can click on it and it gives you part of the solicitation. Uh, Broad Agency Announcement Narrative Networks, DSO, DARPA, B. AA 1203, October 7, 2011, funding and opportunities, it goes down. So let me give you some of the overview. <clears throat> so again, the overview, I told you DARPA soliciting for these, you know, to revolutionize, basically narratives are stories. Narratives are what they put out there, how they, how they use a language in order to see if you can manipulate people to do what you want them to. So the motivation for the solicitation back in 2011 from the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, narrative experts a powerful influence on human thoughts and behavior. They consolidate memory, shape emotions, cue heuristic and biases in judgment, influence in-groups slash out-group distinctions, and may affect the fundamental content of personal identity. It comes as no surprise that because of these influences, stories are important in security contexts. For example, they change the course of insurgencies, frame negotiations, play a role in political radicalization, influence the methods and goals of violent social movements, and likely play a role in clinical conditions important to military, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. These understanding, therefore, understanding the role stories play in a security context and the spatial and temporal dimensions of that role is especially important. Program structure. The program is structured in two 18-month phases with an option for a third 18-month phase should further refinement of prototype technologies to meet transition partners' requirements be needed. The first phase consists of foundational work across all three programs' technical areas. The second phase will use validated findings from all three co-evolved technical areas to construct and deliver optimized prototype technologies in the form of documents, software, hardware, and devices. DARPA reserves the right to work with selected performers to rationalize partnerships in the second phase so as to maximize chances of successful development and testing of prototype technologies. The government team anticipate that by the end of phase one, findings in all three technical areas will be robust enough such that a synergistic, wholly focused effort will continue into phase two with further refinements and co-evolution of phase one funded efforts. The U.S. government's desire to have at least government purpose rights to any methodologies or software developed as a result of narrative network DARPA's BAA1203 research. So it says see section eight, intellectual property. Yeah, talk about it. They have stolen so much intellectual property, that's why most of my recordings are gone. 
only does it prove what they were doing long before it's come out. Proposer structure. Proposers are encouraged but not required to form interdisciplinary teams to innovatively address the narrative network program technical areas. Teams that choose to work in only one technical area or with teams from only one discipline within the context of the broad agency announcement should fully justify the motivations for considering the proposal's technical area in isolation. Additionally, teams applying to one only one technical area should understand that partnership will be necessary to maximize chances of successful development and testing of prototype technologies in later phases. Therefore, inclusion of integration plans for prototype development work is strongly recommended for a single technical area proposal submission. So what, is, what they're talking about is that you build, the final phase is the, the building of software, right? Profiling software. You know, the stuff that Facebook uses. The stuff that I talked about, the nudging. This is your government. Working hand in glove. That's why I always say state, corporate, and academia sponsored, sanctioned, and covered up. Because all three of those broad spectrum agencies work hand in glove. But remember, they only do things for the greater good to advance science and technology because it's a just cause. It's a noble cause. No, it's not. <clears throat> so technical area one, narrative analysis. So how do you present a story? How do you corrupt linguistics? Ascertaining exactly what function stories enact and by what mechanisms they do so is a necessity to effectively analyze the security phenomenon shaped by stories. To do this is a, in a scientifically respectable manner requires a working theory of narratives and understanding of what role narratives play in security context and examination of how best to analyze stories so as to decompose them and their psychological impact systematically. The primary goal of Technical Area 1 is to revolutionize the state of the art in narrative analysis by focusing on the innovative application of tools not traditionally used in that domain. This goal serves to ascertain who is telling stories to whom and for what purpose and to discover latent indicators of the spread and influence of narrative tropes in structures such as social networks, traditional and social media, and in conversation. Technical Area 1 provides a critical framework necessary for progress in Technical Areas 2 and 3. One, TA, Technical Areas, I'll say they, they act, you know, they put it as TA1, Technical Area 1, TA2. So TA1 sub-goal 1, develop new and extend existing narrative theories. Identify the nature of stories, including but not limited to, a list of necessary and sufficient conditions that help distinguish narrative stimuli from other stimuli. Identify and explore the kinematic and dynamic dynamics of story ontology. Identify and explore the structure and function of narratives, including identifying and discussing aspects of narratives that are universal versus aspects that vary considerably across culture and social context. So remember, the last recording, I have the one-stop shop on my website. You go into communities, you find out. 
the profile. You look for the leaders that have the biggest member base, and that's, that's your target. You use that person to then influence their member base, their group base. And that's how it spreads so fast. On the first page of my website, where you um, asked to or given, provided a social network site that depicted the target in such a negative way that you just simply could not help but join, jump on board. Based on the narratives that were being told by sock puppets, one person, that could be 10 or 50 different users. Virtually undetectable. That, that is, it, it's, a, it's a propaganda machine. So number two, TA1 sub goal two, identify and understand the role of narratives in security context. Determine the role and extend story play in influencing political violence. Identifying and explore the function narratives serve in the process of political radicalization and how they can influence a person or group's choice of means, such as indiscriminate violence, to achieve political ends. Identify and explore how narratives influence bystanders to conflict in terms of shaping their attitudes and perceptions. Identify and explore how narratives shape the process of negotiation, especially between key stakeholders. Identify and explore the relationship between narratives and the mechanisms that generate and reinforce psychiatric and or clinical conditions. Develop methodologies to enable assessment of the impact of narratives on attitude and perception. Three, TA1 sub-goal three, survey and extend the state of the art in narrative analysis and decomposition tools. Take narratives and make them quantitatively analyzable in a rigorous, transparent, and repeatable fashion. Identify and develop narrative analysis tools that best establish a framework for the scientific study of the psychological and neurobiological impact of stories on people. Identify and develop analytic approaches or tools that explore how stories propagate in a system so as to influence behavior. Identify temporal and spatial dimensions of narratives in different media and how these dimensions complicate the analysis of narratives and develop a framework or method for addressing these complications to enable advancements in technical areas two and three. All proposed efforts within each sub-goal need to be structured in a manner that is measurable in comparison to the state of the art and that can be validated by independent researchers. This structure and associated metric must be clearly described in the proposal along with milestones for their accomplishment. Proposals are considered responsive to technical area one if they address all three sub-goals described above. Proposals that include additional sub-goal area areas, I'm sorry, sub-goals are also welcome and will be considered for funding. Proposals that do not address all sub-goals will be considered non-responsive. Technical area two, narrative neurobiology. Since the brain is the proximate cause of our actions, stories have a direct impact on the neurobiological processes of both the sender and receivers of narratives. Understanding how stories inform neurobiological processes is critical if we are to ascertain what effect stories have on the psychology and neurobiology of human choices and behavior. The primary goal of Technical Area 2 is to revolutionize our understanding of how narratives and stories influence our underlying neurobiology at multiple levels of analysis, 
ranging from basic neurochemistry to the system level to big picture system of system analysis. Technical area two serves as the neurobiological and neurochemical backbone of the narrative identified and analyzed as being relevant in technical areas one and proposals that link technical area two goals to explanations of salient narrative psychological phenomena such as engagement, transportation, immersion, and synchronization are highly encouraged. So what does that mean? So now that you know that you're shaping narratives, right, can you push people or nudge people into what you want them to do? So what better way to experiment than on American soil? Right, even though you may use it later in a foreign country, you first have to figure out how to use it. And you can't do these things in a foreign country if you're not trained. But American soil is one of the biggest melting pots of the globe. We have every ethnicity, every socioeconomic, homogenous to you know, rural to homogenous to to extremely diverse. Every religion. What better place to study this? Than on your own people. Can I drop ship into the Monterey Peninsula where you know, on one part you have multimillionaires, on another part you have lower income minorities? Of course you can. You just prey upon the weaknesses of each one of those communities. And then you get them and radicalize them based on the narrative they told about me, the target. And then you study how you take these normal average everyday citizens and you radicalize them to the point where they're vandalizing your property, stealing from you, telling lies about you just to get you in trouble, setting them up. Or otherwise, they wouldn't have done that had they not been radicalized based on the ontology of a narrative, which is also known and formally known as propaganda. <clears throat> so... Technical area two, sub-goal one, assay narrative effects on our basic neurochemistry. Determine if narratives uniquely modulate human hormone or neurotransmitter production. Determine if the production and uptake of behaviorally important neurotransmitters such as oxy, oxy, oxytocin or serotonin is influenced by narratives and in what way. Identify novel neurotransmitters or other biologically active molecules modulated by narrative influence. Determine the impact of narratives on volume transmission systems in the brain in general. Determine the manner in which narratives affect change during uh, ontogeny, ontogeny, O-N-T-O-G-E-N-Y, and or due to socioeconomic and other environmental conditions. So what does that mean? So now that you, you, you've sold the narrative to your target audience, also known as people from within the general population, and you're trying to target specific groups and or, you know, how to buy. So you might, like, um, your target audience because you want to sell, I don't know, uh, sports things. So you look up all the people who are sports fans, you know. And then you start promoting those advertisements to those people. So it's been it's been done for years, especially in social networking. That's where you see all those advertisements come up based on what you've been looking at on the internet. So it's gathering information, and then they keep popping that up in order to manipulate you to buy, right? Um, but in this case, now that you've got the story or the narrative, then the next thing is you start scanning people, monitoring them, 
not just externally, but internally. What are the what are the synapses that are firing in that brain as they tell you a propagandized story about a target in your community, and they want to see where the rage is, where the fear is. And then once they know where that point is, then they start preying upon that so that it enhances the fear or the anger or the intolerance or the bigotry or the hate. So technical area two, sub-goal two, understanding narrative impact on the neurobiology of memory, learning, and identity. Identify the mechanism that explains why stories modulate recall. Determine how brain regions important for memory are influenced by narrative. Identify what role reward processing mechanisms associated with learning play in the process of narrative. Explore the differential, differential influence of stories on neurotransmitter systems as compared to other environmental stimuli. Determine how stories impact the neurobiology of important identity-related judgments, such as whom you consider to be a member of your in-group and whom you count as an out-group member. So now that's the division, right? You know, divide and conquer. That's the whole concept, divide and conquer. So the perpetrators think they're the in-group and the the targets and other people who don't uh, participate, because I know it's inhumane, and in violation of that victim's fundamentally protected rights and liberties, and they don't participate, but they know what's happening. As MLK said, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. And trust me, that silence has betrayed many. And it's killed many. So technical area two subgroup goal three, assess narrative influence on the neurobiology of emotion. Identify the neurobiological emotions that are impacted by salient narratives. Determine why in neural terms, stories are especially effective at generating emotional reactions. Identify and explore explore any unique influences narratives have on the neural mechanisms of empathy and sympathy. Determine in neurobiological terms how and why narratives stir emotions such as disgust or outrage. Technical area two, sub-goal four. Examine how narratives influence the neurobiology of moral judgment. Explore the influence of stories on the neurobiology of moral judgment and development. Determine what aspects of narratives are most likely to cause changes in moral judgment and via what mechanism. Identify the neural mechanism or mechanisms by which narratives affect judgments about moral guilt and or innocence or the moral permissibility and or impermissibility of certain actions. So what does this mean? So now that you radicalize them, right, and you've changed their behavior, now you've got to study what parts of the brain are firing. What are the facial, optical, and emotional recognitions to the point where these people are now pretty much indoctrinated into the narrative that they'll start thinking and plotting to harm, to do harm? That's radicalization. <clears throat> and how do, how do you change that judgment, right? Like the nudge that I was talking about. influencing behavior to nudge them to behave and act 
the way you want them to. Technical Area 2, Sub-Goal 5, determine how narratives modulate other brain mechanisms related to social cognition. Determine how narratives differentially affect the neurobiological basis of theory of mind and judgment of the mental states of others. Identify and explore how stories influence neural mechanisms responsible for the generation and sustainment of collective, collective action or group behavior. Determine if and by what mechanisms stories uniquely synchronize or sustain the neural mechanisms of shared attention, collaboration, joint problem solving, and trust. So now you've got the group think together. All efforts within, within each sub-goal need to be structured in a manner that is measurable in comparison. Okay, technical area three, narrative module simulations and sensors. So now that you have manipulated the people, you're also building standoff modalities that can track it, whether it's through social networking, whether it's through whatever, you're building the profile. Who are the most easy people, the one core capability who could be manipulated by psychological operations or narrative networks that drop ship into your communities and manipulate you to believe what they want you to believe so that you, you will obstruct justice. You will not get a, an attorney for a victim who's trying to explain this is what's happening, who will delay your appointments, who will try to get you fired from your jobs, not because you're a liar, but because you're telling the truth. Who are the target audience people, individuals and or groups that you can prey upon because you know their weaknesses and get them to change their behaviors? So technical error, so this now, technical error three is the one where you start building malleant detectors. Remember I talked about the airport. The woman who gets a call that she has, a, she, she, something happened to one of her parents or relatives. She's got to get on a plane and she, she has to leave work, get on a plane, and get to, get to the airport to get on a plane to go see this, this relative that may or may not be dying or something happened. And she get, walks into the house and she catches her husband having an affair or vice versa. Well, they don't have time to get into an argument with that person because they got to get on the plane because there's just all these emotions going on. But you're really pissed off because you saw that person. So you're building a, a malleant detector, a standoff modality, a behavioral, you know, a, a, a artificial intelligence behavioral recognition that monitors your, the synapses in your brain as you're walking through a big x-ray machine. Of course, I'll tell you that it won't hurt you because it's non-ionizing radiation. But you always have to remember the key word, radiation, radio frequency, exposure to radiation. So the malleant detectors, you know, facial, optical, emotion, vocal, uh, to brain recognition. You know, the synapses in your brain, and they're like, you know, railroad tracks on, in an airport or in any public or government setting. And it's, it's tracking the neurobiology of a human being. So I told you how it could, the system can be tricked through the software. And I've, I said this from the beginning. For every piece of technology you guys come out with, I'll show you how it can be manipulated to read whatever it wants to read so it can make an innocent person look guilty because it's software. And software is programmed. So needless to say, the, the standoff modalities is what this technical area three is about. 
building the next phase, which is now that you, you've studied all of this and you've been monitoring and tracking the neurons and the synapses that are firing in the brains of the civilian community members that you've radicalized to commit indiscriminate acts of violence to view the target in a dehumanized manner so you don't care what the fuck you do to that person. Your brains are the ones who've been studied. Because now you do it so indiscriminately that you don't even recognize the fact that you're committing aggressive violence against another person. But your brain fires with all that sadistic glee that you feel when you fuck with somebody else. So that is what part of technical area three is, is basically building your standoff modalities, right? How to detect malicious behavior. How to detect the rise to radicalization. Well, they've used the all-American soil as a melting pot. They could trigger anyone. So remember the Malian detector. So I said this is a way that it, it could probably be legally argued against. And that was the fact that so the woman gets dragged away, right? She gets dragged away because her brain is firing at all kinds of synapses that, that the Malian detector is going, warning, warning, danger, danger, you know, like the robot in Lost in Space. But in reality, the woman has no intentions. She's just angry and hurt and confused but she's got this other thing that she has to get to and she doesn't have time to deal with it but as she's walking through the airport she thinks about what she witnessed her husband having an affair in her bed in her house and her brain's going to be firing at all kinds of that motherfucker blah 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 so those are all angry thoughts so you're walking through a malleant detector at an airport and that thing the warning warning danger danger is firing off you get dragged off but you're really not planning anything. There's just all kinds of things that show how the system not only can be manipulated, but how the system can be erroneous. And I also talked about, but maybe that's why part of the the difference of being able to have empirical evidence is the target is the victim. So their brain thinks the same, you know, angry thoughts when they're being tortured or someone vandalized their property or stole from them. And it's firing as a victim. But the perpetrator is doing it by choice, by acts and actions, through malicious intent to cause or inflict intentional harm. Do the synapses fire different from a victim who's been victimized, who has that angry thought, to the people who have no feelings towards their dehumanized object that they inflict all kinds of stuff on? And I bet you the answer is yes. So how do you say I have empirical evidence that this malleant detector knows the difference between the victim's rage and a perpetrator's rage? And they probably already have that answer to empirical evidence. How did they get that evidence? Well, they used Americans as their guinea pigs. They use a target to bring together the hate groups that have been radicalized. 
or the people who the target audiences who have been radicalized to become a hate group. The seven stage hate model. And what are they studying? Well, the victims reacting because they're being victimized. But the perpetrators are reacting to a different kind of mechanism. And that's malice. So technical area three, narrative models, simulations, and sensors. In order to understand exactly how narratives influence human behavior, models must be developed that can simulate these influences and directly measure their impact. This technical area will focus on the development of tools to understand others, detect narrative influence, and predict responses. The ultimate goal of technical area three is to enable prevention of negative behavioral outcomes, such as use of indiscriminate violence and generation of positive behavioral outcomes, such as building trust. This will involve modeling and simulating the influence of narratives on individuals and or groups to help us predict and quantify how and why our behavior changes as a result of narrative interaction. Proposals to this technical area will address these goals by building sensor systems that detect the appropriate variables contained in these models. Technical Area 3 captures the deliverables and technologies that potential users will be most likely to interact with as the conclusion of the program. These models, simulations, and sensors should be designed in a manner that allows for modification and refinement due to the successful incorporation of methodologies and findings developed and confirmed in Technical Area 1 and 2. Technical Area 3, Sub-Goal 1, revolutionize the state of the art in modeling and simulating influence. Baseline against existing models of the influence process to determine the best extent methods of the understanding and forecasting influence. Use findings from Technical Area 1 and 2 as they become available to frame more effective models of the influence process. Refine and extend models of behavior by including consideration of narrative-driven mental and neurobiological states and the variables which influence them. Develop novel or improved methods for capturing the transition from changes in beliefs, desires, and attitudes to actions, right? So first you sell the story, you monitor the rise of these people to radicalism, and then boom, they're flattening tires, they're stealing from someone. They all think that what's pulling things from the shelf. These are all the influences that they're studying. Um, survey and analyze particular model modeling methodologies, agent-based game theoretic system dynamics, directed graphs, etc., to determine how to best extend them to influence-oriented applications. Determine how influence models are best validated and verified. Two, technical area three sub goal two. Develop and validate new models or dramatically improve existing influence models by incorporating narrative considerations. Identify whether existing influence models can be improved by the addition of a narrative layer, quote-unquote. Identifying and examine the ontology and transition state of this layer. Develop a methodology for incorporating narrative-driven neurobiological 
considerations into improved influence modeling and determine whether this requires modeling individuals and or groups. Determine what aspects of narratives, neurobiology, such as memory, emotions, judgment, learning, and identity are most critical for building a new or dramatically enhancing existing influence models. Build such a model capable of either or both individual and population level narrative influence modeling and demonstrate that it is twice as effective as existing methods at forecasting influence. Validate and verify the model in at least one potentially irritable testable domain, such as forecasting the success of advertising, motives, public relation campaigns, or reception of disaster relief intervention. Three, technical area three, sub-goal three, develop non-standard and novel sensor suites key to the variables and processes identified in new or improved influence models. Determine what critical variables are missing from current influence models or must be incorporated into new influence models. Identify how those variables can be best can best be identified, detected, and measured. Identify what environmental variables are most critical for the influence process and develop methods for measuring them. Baseline against current technologies for detecting and measuring indirect indicators of neural activity, such as capillary dilation, galvanic skin responses, eye pupil dilation, gaze direction. Remember, optical facial emotion, vocal recognition, vocal to brain recognition, okay? I'm already published. I've already covered this story. But yet I got to do it again because my recordings have been removed. So baseline against current technologies for detecting and measuring indirect indicators of neural activity, such as capillary dilation, galvanic skin response, eye pupil dilation, gaze direction, microfacial feature analysis, et cetera. So these are your next, next, next generation biometrics. I've, I've covered all of it before this article came out. I already knew what they were doing. Remember the one-stop shop is a laboratory. So you can have your next next generation biometric surveillance, facial, facial, facial optical to emotion recognition. It's almost like they take my words and then they put them into these things and they go find unethical people so that they can get our taxpayer money to learn how to fuck with their own people. How's that for the lay term? and against current standoff technologies for more direct detection and measurement, such as sensing neurobiological compounds. Develop technologies to enable a significant improvement in direct or in, and or indirect measures, or develop an entirely new measure and demonstrate how it is better than existing measures at detecting influence events. Efforts that rely solely on standoff, non-invasive, non-detectable sensors are highly encouraged. So basically, out of sight, out of mind, right? that you don't know it's even being done to you, kind of like the Facebook, building profiles, and then that information gets to another place so that it's used to influence people on how to vote or who to vote for. Efforts that rely solely on standoff, non, 
non-invasive, non-technical. Okay. The technologies developed in technical area three, sub-goal three, should be validated independently and then used in the validation and verification of any model developed to satisfy technical area three, sub-goal two. Uh, all efforts within the subgroup, you know, are structured in the manner tools for potential performers. So then what it, it did was, so award information, and it goes on. So this was back in 2011, and it was, uh, it, they're called, um, uh, you can go to them, they're fed, fedbizops.gov, uh, and what it is is all the stuff that the government's soliciting, whether it's, you know, state corporate and or academia, right? What organ they, they solicit our taxpayer money to say, hey, this is what we're doing. You give us, uh, you know, your your grant proposal to see if you fit within the categories that we're looking for, and then we'll give you money to basically, in this case, uh, how to fuck with people's minds. Do narrative networks, psyop teams. So let me go to my website. Um, Because there's a there's a relevancy to this, and this has to do with um, hold on, let me pull these off. I'm looking for this one, and so, like I said, this is all source material. I'm not just making stuff up. This is, this, these are actual Defense Advanced Research Project Agency from the Department of Defense or DARPA. Uh, their solicitation for external third parties, you know, whether state, corporate, or academia, to to propose uh, do a grant proposal to get funding of our taxpayer money on how best to fuck with people, their minds. But even before all of us and all of this, before the technology, there was someone who figured this one out. And his name was Adolf Hitler. So number four on my website is called Dangers of Group Think Turned Violent Radical Extremist. So remember that DARPA solicitation, but I was already on it, already publishing. How the recruited perps are turned into group thinking, vigilante, and vengeance-obsessed, violent, radicalized extremists. There's a danger of groupthink that has led to state, corporate, academia, and civilian recruited organized stalking using the following techniques and tactics, crowding, mobbing, community-based harassment, street theater, and the levels of insidious violence that are inflicted upon and against the targeted individual who in most cases have spoken 
to the point of being begging proper law enforcement authorities at the local, state, and federal levels, requesting intervention, protection, and a cease and desist to no avail. In almost all cases of organized stalking and recruited community, uh, the recruited community and other leaders within these communities, be they religious, political, and other organizational groups, members of the society uh, that begin to participate will show a clear indication that begins to transpire in what is called groupthink or hive mind hive minds or mind hiving taking place. Um, so there was a TED talk, uh, Philip Zambardo did it, and he talked about this whole concept of, um, of uh, what is the definition of evil. His, I think his definition paraphrased is evil is the exercise of power to intentionally harm people psychologically, destroy them physically, and commit uh, to destroy them physically or their ideas, to destroy their ideas and commit crimes against humanity. And that was his quote. So he doesn't look at evil in terms of God and Satan and all the spiritual stuff. He's looking at individuals. But I think Alexander Sozanista, he said in there, says that good and evil is not about what's out there that influences you. At the end of the day, you make a choice. That's who you are. Not who what influenced you was. It's what you are inside, especially if you have lack critical thinking skills. So you should, uh, it's, it was uh, had to do with evil uh, at a TED Talks back in, two, I think they did it here in Monterey, because that's where TED Talks started. And um, it was over at the conference center. I think it was one of the last conferences back in 2008. And he breaks it down pretty well. So what this was, was um, I also covered in this, this number four, uh, the dangers of groupthink was um, Elvis Huxley did a revised version of A Brave New World. And then he put these, these little uh, chapters in the back uh, of the book. And one of them was called Propaganda, Understand a Dictatorship. Chapter 5, Propaganda Under a Dictatorship. Uh, what were the methods used by Hitler and Goebbels for depriving 80 million people of independent thought and subjecting them to the will of one man? And what was the theory of human nature upon which those terrifyingly successful methods were based? These questions can be answered for the most part in Hitler's own words. In his comments on crowd and propaganda, he was writing of things he knew by firsthand experience. As he himself said, to be a leader means to be able to move the masses. Hitler's aim was first to move the masses and then, having pried them loose from their traditional loyalties and moralities, to impose upon them, with the hypnotized consent of the majority, a new authoritarian order of his own devising. Hitler's aim was first to move the masses. Oh, I'm sorry. Hitler, wrote Hermann Rausching in 1939, has a deep respect for the Catholic Church and the Jesuit order not because of their Christian doctrine, but because of the machinery they have elaborated and controlled, their hierarchical system, their extremely clever tactics, their knowledge of human nature, and their wise use of human weaknesses in ruling over believers. Ecclesiasticism without Christianity, the di this discipline of the monastic rule, not for God's sake or in order to achieve personal salvation, but for the sake of the state and for the greater glory and power of a demagogue turned leader. This was the goal towards which the systematic moving of the masses was led, to be led. Let us see what Hitler thought of the masses he moved and how he did the moving. The first principle from which he, as in Hitler, stated was a value judgment. The masses are utterly contemptible. 
They are incapable of abstract thinking and uninterested in any fact outside the circle of their immediate experience. Their behavior is determined not by knowledge and reason, but by feelings and unconscious drives. It is in these drives and feelings that the root of their position, as well as their negative attitudes, are implanted. To be a successful propagandist must learn how to manipulate these instincts and emotions. So I'm going to repeat that. You see, this was before the age of technology. This was, a, this was a genocidal killing mass murderer by the name of Adolf Hitler, and he figured it out. But sometimes crazy is the only way to figure it out, right? Because you cross the line. So these were in his own words. This was from Aldous Huxley's um, A Brave New World Revisited, and he went back to the book, and at the end, he started putting you know, where he, where he was getting the, the story from, but he started doing his own research and he put these chapters in the, at the end of the book. <clears throat> so let us see how Hitler thought of the masses he moved and how he did the moving. The first principle from which he stated was a value judgment. The masses are utterly contemptible. So the people who are doing the experiments on you don't really think that you're noble or you're the chosen or you're smart. They realize that they're manipulating you, so you guys are, they don't have any respect for you people. They may tell you they do, but they think you're a bunch of fucking idiots. So the first principle from which he stated was a value judgment. The masses are utterly contemptible. They are incapable of abstract thinking and uninterested in any facts outside the circle of their immediate experience. Their behavior is determined not by knowledge and reason, but by feelings and unconscious drives. It is in these drives and feelings that the root of their position, as well as their negative attitudes, are implanted. To be a successful propagandist must learn how to manipulate these instincts and emotions. The driving force which has brought about the most tremendous revolutions on this earth has never been a body of scientific teaching which has gained power over the masses, but always a devotion which has inspired them and often kind of hysteria which has urged them into action. So you know that nudging, right? Whoever wishes to win over the masses must know the key that will open the door of their hearts. Hence, the, heart, the Hearts and Mind campaign for psychological operation, right? Win them over to your side and against whoever they claim is the enemy. Hitler made his strongest appeal to those members of the lower middle class who had been ruined by the inflation of 1923 and then ruined all over again by the depression of 1929 and the following years. The masses of whom he speaks were these bewildered, frustrated, and chronically anxious millions. To make them more mass-like, more homogeneously subhuman, he assembled them by the thousands and the tens of thousands in vast halls and arenas where individuals could lose their personal identity, even their elementary humanity, and be merged with the crowd. Groups are capable of being as moral and intelligent as the individuals who form them. A crowd is chaotic, has no purpose of its own, and is capable of anything except intelligent action and realistic thinking. 
assembled in a crowd, people lose their power of reasoning and their capacity for moral choice. Their suggestibility is increased to the point where they cease to have any judgment or will of their own. They become very excitable. They lose all sense of individual or collective responsibility. They are subject to sudden excesses of rage, enthusiasm, and panic. In a word, a man in a crowd behaves as though he has swallowed a large dose of some powerful intoxicant. He is a victim of what I have called herd poisoning. During his long career as an agitator, Hitler had studied the effects of herd poison and had learned how to exploit them for his own purposes. He had discovered that the orator can appeal to those hidden forces which motivate men's actions much more effectively than can the writer. Reading is a private, not collective activity. The writer speaks only to individuals sitting by themselves in a state of normal sobriety. The orator speaks to masses of individuals already well-primed with herd poisoning. 20 years before Madison Avenue embarked upon motivational research, Hitler was systematically exploring and exploiting the secret fears and hopes, the cravings, anxieties, and frustrations of the German masses. It is by manipulating hidden forces that the advertising expert induces us to buy their wares, a toothpaste, a brand of cigarettes, a political candidate, and and it is by appealing to the same hidden forces that Hitler induced the German masses to buy themselves a Fuhrer, an insane philosophy, and the Second World War. Unlike the masses, intellectuals have a taste for rationality and an interest in facts. Their critical habits of mind makes them resistant to the kind of propaganda that works so well on the majority. All effective propaganda, Hitler wrote, must be confined to a few bare necessities and thus then must be expressed in a few stereotype formulas. These stereotype formulas must be constantly repeated for only constant repetition will finally succeed in imprinting an idea upon the memory of a crowd. Propaganda teaches us to accept as self-evident matters about which it would be reasonable to suspend our judgment or to fill doubt. The aim of the demagogue is to create social coherence under his leadership. Well, that was Hitler. Okay. And anybody who knows about manipulating people, I want to strike. But my life has been profoundly harmed because of the experiments they've conducted and now perfected. And I'm not the only target whose life has been destroyed. So you can come out with any kind of news because I've already documented it. And every time I prove it wrong, the first thing that the herd do, you know, the the herd poisoned crowd, their first reaction is not to accept it as being self-evident and true, is to retaliate against the individual who spoke truth. And a lot of that is because they would have to then, if they were to stop and realize just that cognitive dissonance, that's another term you should look up. Because to realize who they are, 
would mean they had to face themselves and what type of heinous and egregious crimes they committed against someone based on the propaganda somebody else sold them. The one core capability, not the best and the brightest, but the weakest link in all of humanity, especially as we move on in technology. Hiding in plain sight, pretending to be these upstanding citizens, and they'll sit there and torture the shit out of someone. All because somebody else told them it was okay. And they get to the point where they keep doing it so that they don't, it, it becomes second nature to them that they don't even feel a thing about what they're doing to another human being or that human being's life. And now that they have, could you imagine what Hitler would have done with all this technology? Jesus Christ, man, he'd, we'd all be dead. He knew how to do it without the technology. And you just could magnify it on steroids with profiling technology and how dangerous it is. What is the truth? My truth is based on what I had to experience as the victim of these heinous and egregious crimes against my humanity in direct violation of my constitutionally protected rights and liberties. The total invasion of privacy and the exploitation of information and an individual who wants to be a private citizen. The radicalization of other people that I have watched in community after community city after city, state after state, and I lived in Europe, and I traveled through Europe, and nation after nation. What is the truth? Well, for me, as a victim, I know what that is. And like I say, I publish, because eventually it all comes out in the wash. Oh, the target was telling the truth. But we can't admit that because we were part of it. So you'll keep denying the truth of what you as individuals within communities, within workplaces, have done to someone. And will still deny the truth. Because it's easier to deny it and continue to blame the victim than it is to face your own self. And what type of person they've turned you into. Oh, I'm a good Christian. I go to church. Oh, I'm a mayor. Oh, I'm a district attorney. Oh, I'm a judge. I'm a good person. Really. And all the things you did to obstruct justice, obstruct that individual from seeking justice for what's been done. Then you have to face yourself. I've paid a heavy price for what these motherfucking assholes have done, and I will never forgive it. So you think, oh, well, look, at we got her life, but you know what? Look at where I am. I'm not sitting on my heels feeling sorry for myself. I'm just, I'm recording again. You guys chose to use weapons and psychological manipulation techniques and any type of coercive methodologies and physical and trauma and all that stuff. Those were all techniques and tactics and weaponized technologies and physical technologies to harm people. Me? And you used all those weapons. But motherfuckers, I'm still goddamn standing. And you know what? 
I'm still speaking out. You know why? Because it's the right thing to do. And I use my words as a weapon, and I have from the beginning, because that's my choice of how to fight back. So you guys keep thinking you're winning. You, you're bombarding and blitzing a solo person who has, who's unable to protect themselves from all the shit that has been inflicted upon me. But yet, I'm not sitting here curled up in the ball because, you know, you got my workplace to start targeting me and to try to get me out of a job. I get up and I do what I need to do. But in particular, I'm back on recording. That makes me even far more dangerous, doesn't it? Because I'm not afraid of you guys. You're the criminals, not me. And you use all your advances and all your expertise and I'm still standing, motherfuckers. Not that you can't send a signal to fry out my central nervous system or get one of these radical extremists in the thousands that want to kill us, even though we didn't do anything. But what was my weapon? My words and my truth. That's power, motherfuckers. All your weapons, all your people, all your techniques. The words are power. And eventually, there'll be enough people who know it, who come out, where these little leaks come out here and there. And the target isn't made to look worse. The target is only validated in the accusations that they made long before the information comes out. But part of this also has to do with people don't know shit about history. That's why it's doomed to repeat itself. You know, these are all these phrases, right? But there's a lot of truth in that. Did you know that I was reading something from Eldis Huxley's um, uh, A Brave New World Revisited? that Hitler even knew about how to use these type of manipulations. You got a government in 2015 putting out an executive order. Oh, by the way, yeah, we're going to use sociologists, anthropologists, and psychologists to manipulate people. Here they are. They've weaponized their expertise. You remember that whole concept of first do no harm. And these people don't even care about that shit because they want to be the first to be published, you know, in their medical journals about the research they did at the expense and sacrifice of other people's lives who did not give their consent. That's another thing, informed consent. They can, you know, oh, well, you signed this thing, yeah, we're in page 55 line, you know, the microscopic thing that you need a magnifying glass to read. You know how they obstruct it or how they conveniently put it somewhere. So they claim, oh, we have the right to experiment. No, you don't have the right to experiment on people, God damn it. But then in that 2003, you know, the information operation, I told you there was a technological roadmap. And one of these things was a biology or it had to do with some virus or something like that. And in that writing, 
in that 2003 technological roadmap, there was something about how, they, how you could pick your species is how they said it. This is how they framed it. Cow, elk, or human. So when they're conducting these experiments, whether you're a dog, a cat, a cow, or a human, you all fit into the same fucking category to these motherfuckers. That's how they view people. As a means to their ends. Not as salient human beings. So when conducting your experiment, you know, for another one of your government solicitations, studying some type of disease, I think it was, pick your species. You know, identify the species you're going to use when you do your grant proposal. Elk, cow, or human. And it just blew me away reading this technological military roadmap. How they viewed human beings. They're just disposable to these people. So thank goodness I recorded. It's sad that the recordings are gone, but it's a little bit, there. at least there's something where you can get the links to the articles that I covered in my recordings. But I'm glad that I did my, my documenting. I'm glad that instead of falling falling into a ball and curling up, I went and said, where's the source of this coming from and what are these people doing? And when they think they're profiling me, guess what? I've profiled all of you guys. That's why for most targets, we could spot you guys from a mile away. We don't need advanced algorithms and profiling software. We could just see their change in people and how they begin to react to you. And how they become crazed and obsessed in finding something that they could destroy the target with. But that's radicalization. That's brainwashing. So this is going back again because, like I said, I started from 2018 with this uh, uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill professor and you got to watch out for North Carolina Chapel Hill because they have conducted some experiments that are unethical as well. And you can go back to and you can source this material. And what they did was they did not they informed people that they were conducting an experiment on breathing lung asthma, okay? But they didn't tell them, you know, they didn't truly they didn't fully inform them of what they were getting into. And so they had them go into these rooms with lung cancer, you know, diseases, and they 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 um, used uh, diesel exhaust and other known particulates that cause cancer. It's a carcinogen, and they had these people doing this experiment, breathing into these machines, and then you could see a truck on the outside gassing diesel fuel, and these people are inhaling it, knowing that it's a carcinogen. This is in the 21st century, a couple years ago. University of Washington, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, 
University of Pennsylvania, you name the academic, uh, uh, um, the world of academia, and 99% of them are involved. But remember, they only do things for the greater good, to advance science and technology for a noble cause, for a just cause. No, they don't. They do it for their narcissistic fucking egos and their profit motivations. That's what they're led by. They don't give a flying fucking shit about people other than what they can manipulate them to do for them or to get them to do for them. So today was just mainly an exercise in going back for, to the present, to part of the past, to way in the past. Everybody thinks they know. They always look at the target like they're so stupid they don't know anything. One of that. Like the lone voice in the wilderness telling people, do not allow these people to drop ship into your communities and manipulate you to do things. Get a gun and drive them out of your communities. You don't want their fucking propagandized bullshit. You don't want their organized criminal activity. You know, you talk about gangs, you talk about organized crime. They don't hold the candle to a state, corporate, and academia-sponsored domestic terrorist organization. But like I said, I'd rather stand alone knowing I stood for what was right than to stand with a group of motherfucking mass murderers in the making. Fuck you guys. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.